I'd love for you to get your Bibles out and get them, get them open to the book of 1 Peter. As you know, we've been reading through 1 Peter these last few weeks, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, last week, we were finding ourselves at the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to continue on with that chapter. For those of you that weren't here, let me recap a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 1 sets us up beautifully. It talks about how we've been called out. In fact, this letter is written from, uh, we presume it's written from Rome, and, uh, but we know who it's written to. It's written to people that are scattered, scattered throughout all of these different Roman provinces, and uh, primarily in the east, and, and he's saying to all these people who reside as aliens and, and strangers, and some people, uh, some people define that as, well, you know, maybe those were the, the Jews that were scattered to all these places, but I believe from reading through this that if you read further into this letter that he refers to the believers as aliens and strangers because he really redefines our identity. It's not, we're not identified by the nation we were born to or the culture we were raised in, that we're defined by this new identity. We're defined by our relationship to God. We're defined by, we're defined by the fact that we're his sons and daughters now. And so we all kind of have become aliens and strangers in, in a familiar land. This, this place that you may have been born and raised in or you may have immigrated from somewhere else. Either way, we're all aliens and strangers here. We're all uh, not quite fitting in to the norm. We don't fit into the culture fully because there's another culture that's, that's defining our life. And so while we're in this world, we're not of it, of course, as, as, as is laid out in John 17. So 1 Peter 2 last week, uh, we read about how we're all living stones that build a house. God is building a house. And in this analogy that Peter uses, you're not only the stones that build a spiritual house, you're the priests inside the house that offer sacrifices to God. And in many ways, you're the sacrifice itself. So you're three different things in this analogy. But he says these sacrifices are made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're going to continue on with this as God is building a house, as God is building his people. We know that, that Jesus said that he would build his church, right? It's not our job to build his church. He'll build his church. It's our job to be obedient. It's our job to walk in faith. It's our job to love. But it is not our job to do his job. He's building his church and he's using us. And as flawed as we might be, he's using us. That's great. But by the time we get to uh, verse 9, in fact, let's back up to verse 6. He says, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Last week we talked about how he says that that's the same stone that's been rejected. It's rejected by the, the, the house of Israel when Jesus first came to them. It was rejected by the Gentiles as well. That Jesus has been rejected by every culture across the planet, even though he's the most precious stone that God could have ever given, he still was rejected. But then he says, he, quote, he goes back to the Old Testament prophets and says, behold, I lay a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. If we take this from what we talked about at the beginning of the chapter, believing in him is more than just having it somewhere up in your head that you, you agree that Jesus died for you or you would agree that he was the son of God. Belief is, is, is a step further than just acknowledging it in your head because really he's talking about us allowing ourselves to be built together on this cornerstone. And so belief in him also requires that our life is defined 
by him. Our, our life is changed by that. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Another translation says will not be put to shame. In verse 7, he says this, or sorry, in verse 9. No, I'm right, verse 7. <laughs> this precious value then is for those of you who believe. But though, for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, that's a, it's, a, it's not a fun verse to read because we think about all the people that rejected Jesus and are still rejecting Jesus today. And maybe you're sitting here tonight saying, at one point in my life, I was that person who rejected Jesus. We talked last week about how he is the cornerstone that, that is not only so precious to us, but he causes people to stumble. People trip over him all the time, and some people really don't like it. But he says to this doom they were appointed, but then he says this, but you, and this is what we're getting at tonight, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Let's just stop for a minute and take that in. If he had just said one of those things about us, it would have been enough for us to just sit in awe all night. He says, we are a chosen race. Now you realize he's not just writing to one ethnic group in this letter, as far as I know. So we've become a new ethnos. We've become a new race. Whatever race we came out of, we became a new one. We are a chosen race. And that's good because it implies that he actually likes us. Even though we probably didn't give him a ton of reasons to like us, he does. He finds us acceptable through Jesus Christ. And so we're a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. Royal speaks of that, that, that kingship. Priesthood speaks of that ministry to God. And so and in reality, you see that example in the Old Testament where Melchizedek was a, a priest and a king, and Jesus became the perfect image of that as he is our high priest and he's also our king. But he has put you in a position where you have royalty, his royalty flowing through your veins, where we're priests unto our God. Now, we're not priests in the sense that some people might see priesthood. Some people, when you say priest, they picture somebody standing between them and God, which is kind of the Old Testament view of a priest. But the Bible says there's now only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So there's not a person that can stand between you and God. You can't be that person. You can't have somebody in your life that's your mediator between you and God. And yet he calls us priests. So what, what is this priesthood then? If it's not what we've thought of before, what is it? This priesthood is defined by our, I mean, as we saw a few verses before, it's defined by our ministry to God. He's given us something to minister. He says these priests offer sacrifices that are made acceptable through Jesus Christ. What we're bringing to God, he sees it as a holy offering. Whether that's your life, that's the first thing you bring. You're a living sacrifice. Whether it's the fruit of your lips giving thanks. It's our giving, it's our time, it's our energy, it's all of these things. And we minister to the Lord and we minister to people. But he says, we're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Now that word holy, we've got to think about. Because when we think holy, we, we tend to use, we tend to think it's synonymous with perfect or somehow cleaner than everything else. And in fact, that's, that's, could, that's true. But holy in its purest form and its best definition means to be set apart. Means to be different means to not be like everything else. And so all the time in the Old Testament when God says, I'm holy, his point is, I'm not you. He says things like, God is not a man that he should lie. What's he saying? 
Men lie. Now, women, you, 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 you seem real smug right now, but <laughs> men is in the human race. We lie. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor is he a man that he should repent or have to change his mind or go back on his own word. Now, here's the cool part. This is the wonderful thing is he's holy. He's different than us. And yet he says to his people, be holy as I'm holy. We're going to read a verse in a minute. In fact, hold your place in, in 1 Peter. We'll come right back to it. But I want to read you out of 2 Corinthians 6, what the Apostle Paul wrote to this church. Of course, he's writing to people that are trying to redefine their identity. They've come out of idolatry. They've come out of paganism. They're still trying to figure out what's okay and what's not. What food can I eat? How can I eat it? How do I relate to my family? How do I relate to my culture? Do I have to move out of town? If I stay in town, what do I do? You know, how do, how do we relate to the Jewish Christians? You know, all of this is coming into play. And he says this in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now that goes right along with what we read in Peter. He's building a house. Now, if you haven't noticed, that house is his temple. Because in that house, priests are offering sacrifices to God. That's his dwelling place. This building is not the house of the Lord. The grandest basilicas all across the planet are not the house of the Lord. We make up the house of the Lord. Now, he says, he's written earlier in another letter to, these same, to the same church. He said, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, he says that more than once. And one of those times, he's talking about you personally. Your, temp, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But in another place, that you is plural. Don't you know that you are the temple? Here in Canada, we've got uh, the, un the, the unfortunate reality that we don't have a plural for you. You know, the French have vous. Southern relatives have y'all. But what do we have? You guys? Somehow it doesn't seem so holy to say, don't you guys know that you guys are the temple of the Holy Spirit? But that works. Don't y'all know that y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's plural here. We make up the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when he says, if someone destroys that temple, God will destroy him. He's talking about somebody that's coming in and splitting up the people. But now think of it. We make up a temple. Not one person, but all of us together. God is building a house, and it's made up of living stones. Has anybody here, uh, you know, does anybody here think that it would be nice to have a grand brick house? Anybody think that would be wonderful? A great brick house, a beautiful brick house. Just imagine it for a minute. Some of you say, no, that doesn't fit into my plan. But just play along and act like it's nice. All right, nice brick house. Is there anybody in the room today that would think it'd be okay to have one brick that you can sleep under and consider that a house? Would anybody feel comfortable going outside tonight on this beautiful September after evening and, and somehow sleep right in front of Subway with a brick on your chest and say, I have a house? Anybody feel good about that? No. So no matter how good the, the preacher on TV is, no matter how vast your library is, one brick does not make a house. One person does not make a church. You need these people around you. We need each other. There are parts of the body that we don't, we, we're not every part. We're one part. And we need these other parts. And so God is building us together. He's fitting us together. The thief may come to steal, to kill, kill and to destroy, which means to unbuild. 
But Jesus came that we'd have life. And Jesus came to fit us together into a body, to fit us together in a house. Now he says, we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. Now this is what he says. I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Those are huge promises. A lot of people can call him God, but for him to say, I will be your God. What you need, everything you need, I am already. And then he says, this is even bigger, not only will I be your God, you'll be my people. I'm not ashamed to call you my people. I'm not ashamed to claim you. You're my people. Then he says, I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and don't touch what's unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So what he's saying here is that it's not just about, I mean, so many times we hear this verse, we read this, and, and our reality is all centered around us being separate from those people. Our reality, it's, whenever we read that, so often we just see us coming out from among everybody else and us just being different for the sake of being different. But if you read the whole thing, the real point, the real prize, the real goal is not just that you'd be different from your neighbors. The real prize, the real point is that you'd be like him, that you'd be part of his family. He's not calling you to solitude. He's calling you to fellowship with him and with his people. And he says, here's the promise. I'll be your God. He'll be my people. Can you imagine what's being asked of these people? We've talked about this before, but in Hebrews, you see an example of people that are being kicked out of their homes, their synagogues, their families, being denied work. And he says, but if you'll come out, He says, Jesus went outside the camp for you, bore your reproach. Now let us go outside of our camp and meet him there. What a beautiful picture. I know it's hard because if you're a Jew in Jerusalem at that time that the book of Hebrews is written or somewhere else, and you're living in occupied territory with those dirty, stinking Romans telling you what to do, you're living there and your identity is this. They may have taken uh, our autonomy, they may be, they, we may have foreign rulers here, but you know what we have? We have our faith and we have our family, we have our culture. Now imagine you accept Jesus. You receive him as the Messiah. You begin to worship him as the son of God. And your family says, you're not part of our family anymore. Your synagogue says, get out. Everything that defined you now is shaken. He says, come out from your camp and meet me right out here. And here he says, come out from among them and be separate. The point isn't you getting away from those people. The point is you coming to meet him where he is. Come be part of my family. Come be part of my tribe. Be my people. And what a promise. That's why he says, that's why Paul, we're not going to read it, but Paul goes on in the next few verses and says, having these promises, brethren, Therefore, because of these promises, let's cleanse ourselves of any defilement of the flesh. Let's get rid of all this other stuff that used to be what we thought defined us and we used to think this is what made us special. Let's get rid of that and let's embrace who he is. Now back to 1 Peter. He said the same, this is the same promise. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. You'll be sons and daughters to me. He says, 
You are a people for God's own possession. And there's a reason. And the reason is this. So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Part of the deal of us being called into his family and being chosen as his people, part of the deal is so that you'll have something to proclaim to everybody. You know, it's, it's throughout the Old Testament that God says more than once that he's chosen his people Israel to show the Gentiles and show the rest of the world his nature and his character. They failed at it a lot, didn't they? But he wanted to show himself through his people. And that promise has come right back around to us today. God wants to demonstrate his excellence to the world. Now, he could bypass us. And he could have a big moment like Christmas morning where the shepherds see an angelic light show and are awed and knocked on their backs. And the angels could do all the work and say, look who God is, look how wonderful he is. But God has chosen to use us. God could show up in, in glory himself. He could show up in the middle of Lloydminster by the border markers, hand on one, one on each side. And he could say, look at me, stand in awe at my splendor. And yet, he chooses to use his people. He chooses to use his people to demonstrate and to proclaim his excellence. To demonstrate and proclaim this, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God is showing off to the world through his own people. He's taking people that couldn't do anything. He's taking the weak and the simple and the base. And he's using them to confound the wise. He says this in 1 Peter 2.10. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. I love that verse. You weren't a people. What does that mean? You're a bunch of different groups. You're a bunch of different races. You're a bunch of different ethnicities. You were from scattered cultures. And now, you, I mean, look around the church. Look tonight at, at, at the group of people we have here. Look on a Sunday morning and, and go, and have you ever asked yourself, what in the world do we all have in common? If not for Jesus, why are we in the same room? But we are not without Jesus. This is the point. We weren't a people. But now, we are the people of God. That's our identity. Now, do you realize in order for that to be your main identity, there's some things you got to lay down. That should be the, the biggest thing in our life. That should be the prime thing that we identify with. God's got no problem with culture, I wouldn't think, as a rule. I mean, there's certain elements of culture I'm sure he has a big problem with. But, I mean, I believe that God loves our, our styles of music, maybe not all of them. You guys pick your favorites. <laughs> well, I believe he loves the different cultures of the world. In, in all of these cultures, you'll find traces of him. But those cultures aren't perfect. And those cultures aren't the, meant to be the main thing that defines us. Now, we've come out of our cultures and we've come to, into his culture. And he says, you were once not a people. You're a bunch of scattered ragamuffins from all over the place, but now you are the people of God. Is there any better title we could have? Is there any better honor that could be bestowed on us than God says, this is my tribe right here. You're my tribe. You're my people. You're the ones I, I talk about. You're the ones that I introduce at family reunions. You're my people. We had once not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's huge to me. 
He goes on and tells us, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. By Gentiles, he doesn't just mean non-Jews. He means non-believers, people who are outside of the covenant of God. You know, sometimes we, we have this image in our mind that those martyrs of the early church went to their deaths with halos on their heads, somebody playing a violin, and everybody weeping because good men and women were dying. The truth is, they were killed, and people believed they deserved it. They were, they were tried as arsonists. They were tried as atheists. They were tried as pedophiles. They were tried as all these things. They were tried as, as traitors to the, to, the, to the government. They were tried as all these sorts of things. And many people thought it was good that they were going to their death. He says, you will be slandered, but keep your behavior excellent. What? What did we just read a few verses before? We might proclaim the excellencies of him. So when he says keep your behavior excellent, he's saying keep your behavior like him. Let your behavior, let your life reflect the God you serve. And you know what? They still might slander you. They'll still say something about you that might not be true. But in the day of visitation, they'll remember and they'll see your life and they will glorify God. There's one One person wisely said, people will slander you, people will falsely accuse you, but live your life in such a way that it it nullifies those accusations. Live your life in such a way that you don't give them anything real to deal with. Satan's a liar, we know that. We know that, that he's the father of lies, but live your life in such a way that it reveals the truth. Live your life in such a way that even when they do slander you, someday they'll glorify God. Jesus said that they might see your good works and glorify God, glorify your Father who's in heaven. I want you to turn to Colossians 3, and we'll kind of wrap up this with this section of Scripture. I love Colossians 3. I always have. I can't say I always have, but I have for a long time. Colossians 3 begins with what we're to lay aside, the stuff we're supposed to put away, the stuff that was part of our old life but it's not part of our new life. Put that aside. Lay it aside. It's not who you are again. Then he says this in verse 9, do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. There's an identity we've had to lay aside. Now, here's the interesting thing. This letter's written to Christians. I know when you got born again, you were converted. I know when you were baptized. You know, you suddenly didn't all, you just magically turn into a different person. Your spirit was made brand new. But you still had the same thought patterns that you had before many times. You had to, what does the scripture say? You have to renew your mind. You don't, just, you don't just automatically think different all the time. Now, there are new thoughts, there are new things that are coming into your head, but you've got to choose to lay aside who you used to be. And then there's some Christians, let's be honest, there's some Christians who are defined by not being who they used to be. That's all they are. 
I used to be an alcoholic, but I don't drink anymore. I used, to, I used to be an abuser, but I don't hit anybody anymore. And that's all they are. Well, thank God for that. Praise God for that. But that's not the extent of who God wants you to be. Peter said, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He doesn't say, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. How he stayed out of trouble and just wasn't, generally was a pretty good guy. and Didn't cause anybody any pain. You've heard of Jesus of Nazareth who avoided sin like the plague. <laughs> Jesus was sinless. And yet his life was not defined by who he wasn't. Even though he was the sinless, perfect lamb of God. If you were to speak of his life, you're not just speaking of what he didn't do. You're speaking of what he did. So you don't just lay aside the old self. You put on the new self. It's talking to believers. So this is a choice you have to make. You have to choose to lay aside the old life. And you got to choose to put on the new life. Well, how do I know what the new self looks like? He says you're, that new self that God has already put in you, has already given you, is, is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That new self looks like Jesus. The new self looks like him. He's adopted you into his family, and you're looking like your dad. Isn't that a cool thing? I think about that adoption all the time. How, you know, some of you, maybe you got born again at, at 22. You were adopted into the family of God. Well, if you adopted a 22-year-old into your family in this life, people would be able to tell they weren't part of your family. Wouldn't take a detective to figure that out. This kid doesn't fit. But our adoption was so radical that we were reborn. We were born again. That's a radical adoption. And he says here, now choose that, put on that new self, which is being renewed according to a, true, to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. That's a big thing right there. Greeks with their intellectual superiority, the Jews with their religious superiority. There's no distinction between you guys. No distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, God help us, Scythian. Because he couldn't just say barbarian. He had to call the Scythians out. Right? The super barbarians, the gross people. I don't know what the Scythians were like in Paul's time. I know what they were like a few hundred years earlier, and I wouldn't want to go to church with those people. I wouldn't want to eat with those people. And uh, he says, there's no distinction between you guys anymore. Barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, what a radical statement in that culture. A super-classed society where there was a whole slave class. And the last thing you'd ever expect is that you'd go to church, and that slave might be your pastor. But that's the reality of the church. There's no distinction. You don't bring that into the body of Christ. Well, does that mean I revolt and I, I cast my chains aside and I kill my master in his sleep? No. In fact, the scripture says you keep going to work and you know what? God will repay you. What, what your master's not paying you, I'll pay you. He says you win your master over because you used to work just while he was watching you. You did it as eye service, but now you work for me. Whatever you do, do is unto the Lord. And he says in Titus, he says, and so tell these people that in doing so, they are wearing their doctrine. They are clothing them, themselves with their belief. He goes on and he says, 
There's no slave, there's no free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Now I want to bring that back to that first Peter thought. Remember, we are living stones, but the point of the whole thing is not just you as living stones. The major point is him as the cornerstone. Like we talked about last week, we can, we can all get in unity and still be wrong. Couldn't we? We'd all have a meeting and say, let's just finally just agree on stuff. And we could agree on things that were totally wrong. And we could have the most unified feeling and say, hey, guys, there's no strife. There's no disagreement. We're all on the same page. We're of one mind, one heart, one soul. And yet, if you're not in the same page as him, if you're not united with him, you're more wrong than when you started. Come on, all these body parts don't work together because they look at each other. The body parts work together because they're connected to the head. We work if we're connected to the head. We can have a nice club. We can have a nice meeting space. We can have a nice society that does nice things for the community. But if we're not connected to the head, which is Christ, it will be out of order. And that will fail. That body will fail. Or to use the building analogy, the building that is not founded on that cornerstone will either collapse under its own weight or easily blow over in a storm. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, be burned. When, when the testifier comes, it won't last. So here's what we're seeing. That we are, Christ is all and Christ in all. One translation or paraphrase says, everyone is defined by Christ. And everyone is included in Christ. Now, that's tough. Because in theory, that's a really nice idea. That we'd all come into the church and there'd be no difference between any of us. I don't see culture and I don't see race and I don't see class and I don't see all these things. And yet, we do see these things. In fact, sometimes those are good things. But we got to come to a place where we are so defined by Christ that all those other distinctions pale in comparison to what binds us together. But what binds us together is him. Everyone is defined by Christ. That's your new family. That's your new tribe. That's your new genealogy. You want to look at your family history? Look at Hebrews chapter 11. These are the people we're from. God says, he says to his people in the Old Testament, look to the rock that you were cut from. Look to the quarry you were dug out of. Look to Abraham, your father. You might say, well, I'm not Jewish. I can't look to Abraham, my father. The scripture says it very clearly. Jesus said to the Pharisees, your father isn't Abraham. Your father's the devil. He says to us and to the Jews, to all those that believe by faith, we are the sons of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. So he says, you guys wonder what you're made of. What kind of stock do I come from? What kind of family do I come from? He says, look to the rock you were hewn from. Look to the quarry you were dug out of. Look to Abraham. Look at the stock. You want to look at, look at what you're made of? Look at Hebrews 11. Look at the Old Testament. Look at these men and women of faith and say, these, this is my tribe, the people of God. So that's not just the word church. That's not just the group that meets here. That's the people all over this city. The family of God, the people of God. If that's our reality the only way the building's going to work is if it's, per, if it's in line with the cornerstone. If that's the focus, that's our precious, that's our choice, 
cornerstone. Here's the promise. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll be your father. You'll be my sons and daughters. Every relationship we have is first defined by that relationship. The way we get along with our brothers and sisters is having a proper relationship with our Father in heaven. If I have that relationship with him and that's in line, it's a lot easier for me to get along with everybody else. If I am lined up with the cornerstone, it's a lot easier for this building to make sense and me being okay being fitted next to Tony or me being okay fitting next to Trudy because I know that we're all lined up with the cornerstone. I know that these parts work together because they're attached and getting their orders from the head. I know that we can come together and say all those distinctions that used to be a big deal to us. All those, I mean, come on. I, I, I've pastored for 10 years in Loon Lake. I grew up in Loon Lake, a town which has seen great division over the years because on one hand, there's the reserve, and on the other hand, the town, and they've all got, they've all got reasons to be upset at one time or another. You know what I mean, Tyra, you know? There's, there's times where they say, these people treat us badly, or these people disrespect us, or these people get this money, and we don't get this. And to, to experience the wonder of walking into a church where those people become family when they come and worship together, when they eat in each other's homes, and when they, they see the hand of God move so that you're not just putting up with each other anymore. Now you love these people more than you love your, you know, your neighbor down the street, more than you love your natural family, there is a love for the family of God. We have to allow ourselves to be defined differently. We're defined this way. You'll be my people. You'll be different. You'll be aliens. You'll be strangers. You'll find that you no longer fit in so well with the rest of the culture. But you'll fit with me. You'll be part of my family. I'll be your dad. These will be your brothers and sisters. Come out from among them and come out to where I am. Every relationship is defined by that relationship. Let's let ourselves, let's allow ourselves to be redefined. Let's allow our church to be redefined. Let's, let's every now and then examine, are we oriented properly? Are we, are we just comparing ourselves with one another? Are we just finding our place based on where this person is or where, where this person thinks I should be? Or are we finding our place based on where he is? Do I really look around and say, no, nah, come on, guys, I'm not saying that you go, what, you're Filipino? I didn't notice. <laughs> Let's not be silly, right? You know, I mean, Tony, I didn't notice the truck you had. I, it could have been a moped for all I know. We're, we're all the same. You notice these things, and, and I think there's times to celebrate these things. But there is no, no need now for a distinction. There's no barrier between us based on these things. You know, I think it's a good thing uh, in certain countries where there's ethnic groups that speak a different language. I think it's a good thing for them to be able to gather together and worship God in their own language. I think that's great. But... What if we all speak the same language? Do you think it's a good idea for us to separate based on race? No. It might be easier. Yeah. But I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing for us to have a, a youth church and a senior church. The youth church can play their loud music and the senior church can play their hymns. Is that easier? Absolutely it's easier. Is it what God's looking for? I don't think so. Would it be easier 
If we just had a certain class of people meet over here and a certain class of people meet over here, sure, it would be easier. But you know the only division that, that I find in the New Testament that's allowed in the church is a division between unbelief and belief. That's the division that he draws the line in. You believe, you disbelieve, there's a division right there. He says this, to the believers, he's the precious cornerstone. To the unbelievers, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they're headed for doom. But no other distinction is allowed. Does it mean we don't notice our differences? No, we notice our differences. But if we turn our face to him and say, we're now defined by you, those differences aren't as important as what brought us together, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's stand up together, and we're going to pray.